Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Molly Strauchler. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 Charlottesville. And also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Goleska, plus an interview with UVA alumna Barb Shabinsky, in which she shares and discusses LGBTQ plus culture on grounds in the late 1980s. But right now, we're joined in the studio by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes, news editor Elliot Robinson, and executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Giles Morris. Emily Hayes has just published a long-form article about the tension between investment and affordability along Cherry Avenue and surrounding Fifeville. Yeah, you know, I started writing this because I've seen a lot of really great in-depth articles about gentrification and worries about displacement. But we talked in the newsroom about how there are fewer articles about what to do about it. So I was looking at Fifeville, which is the only neighborhood with roughly the same percentage of African-Americans as Charlottesville and Albemarle had as a whole at the end of slavery. So that's about over half of the population. And it's right next to some of the highest value real estate in the city on West Main Street and the university. And we're not seeing statistics that show that gentrification and displacement have happened, according to these sort of big national studies. But you're starting to see some conflict. Over half of the renters in the neighborhood are cost burdened, which means they're spending more than 30% of their income on rent and utilities. And the Cherry Avenue small area plan that you mentioned, the neighborhood asked for this in 2016, and now they're working on a third draft of it. The immediate stimulus was a Marriott was getting built on the corner of Cherry Avenue and Ridge Street. And Residents were really alarmed by how big it was, you know, much bigger than than other things that were currently on the street. So, you know, zoning and traffic were a big part of what the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission was hired by the city to do. And there was a lot less uh, on the housing solutions. So if you are interested in getting into this, uh, some, of the, some of the housing solutions, zoning is one of the big ways that people talk about how do we fix housing across the country. And upzoning has been a big hero in that conversation. It's like where you turn single-family neighborhoods into, you know, it could be the same size of house, but it could have four different renters there, uh, a duplex or something. And that's seen as a solution to, you know, our very segregated neighborhoods. But how do you apply this to Fifeville, where you have very historic homes that sort of in a way memorialize just by still being there some of the early craftspeople, some of the early black luminaries in the city. And it's also already next to West Main, which we mentioned, super tall buildings. And I think a, a lot of people see West Main Street as almost targeting the black neighborhoods. A lot of the black neighborhoods are right there, right next to the downtown mall, right next to West Main Street. And, you know, there's a clear backside to the buildings and the backside of those buildings is on these black neighborhoods. So you could build up to five stories on Cherry Avenue in a lot of places. But a lot of people feel that these are not the places to upzone, uh, especially the Charlottesville Low Income Housing Coalition told me. We want to focus on upzoning in the white segregated neighborhoods. The other big component of this is money. Even if you upzone, studies have shown that you don't necessarily get affordable housing. 
So you need to fund things like construction of housing or, or just subsidize people's rents or just subsidize repairs of low-income homeowners for their houses or tax relief. So those are some of the options that the city could fund even without building new houses. Could you talk also a little bit about some of the former plans that have attempted to make change in Cherry Avenue and their limitations? So this is a big, big theme, especially in the community engagement that the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission did for the plan. People were like, why, why am I doing this again? You know, since the 1970s, there have been plans asking for a lot of the same things. So when people don't see those being implemented, then they really distrust the process and distrust the city as a whole. There's a checklist in the plan of like 21 recommendations over the what, five decades, and most of them were not done or unknown whether they were done. I think that speaks to the complexity of trying to shape and craft neighborhoods because it's essentially done by private developers who are working on the market and playing a very long game. And for a city to shape that process, it doesn't matter how much community engagement you do or how many uh, plans you've made, you have to have actually a very clear and demonstrative approach in order to be able to affect the force of the market. Otherwise, you get neighborhoods that look like they haven't changed in 20 years and then change all at once in five because people have been sitting on the properties and on um, their prospectuses for that period of time. And when the money makes sense, it all happens at once. Jordy Yeager did an amazing story on 10th and Page, I think opened up a lot of people's eyes to the effect of these economic forces um, of a growing professional city and the university expanding on a historically black neighborhood right next to the university. But honestly, when the story came out, it was basically all over but the shouting. I mean, there wasn't much more to be done in 10th and Page. Cherry and Fifefield's different, and it's, a, it's sort of the heart of the urban black experience in the city, and it could be a really vibrant, um, mixed-income, mixed-use, diverse urban landscape that Charlottesville doesn't really have yet. But if no one's going to sort of make it clear what that should look like, the developers are just going to do what they do. And that's not their fault, frankly. It's the city. It's up to the city to have a much stronger voice in how it wants places like that to turn out. In your reporting and in talking to people in the community, do you get the sense that for community members and people who live in that neighborhood, the goal is mixed use and mixed income? You know, I think that people really like Fifeville as it is. And they, they, want, they want some additional th- They want more investment. Mm-hmm. They want fix all this infrastructure that they've been talking about in these plans for years, the fix the sidewalks, you know. And they, and they want to make sure that places are affordable. So I think the question is, how much do you have to change the neighborhood to make it, make sure it stays affordable? You know, residents can say what they want, but nobody should be putting that on them. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the job of city departments and planners yep. and journalists and community organizers um, to help shape so that people can be like, ah, that sounds right. I'm into that. Or not. And as Emily mentioned earlier, Fifeville, from the city's definition, is a very large area, a lot larger than what an average person probably thinks when somebody says Fifeville. So the studies show that there isn't that much of a problem at the moment. But if we wait around until on paper it says that there is a crisis in Fifeville on the scale of 
what Tempton Pace said is, is pretty much too late at that point. So that's the one thing that residents are trying to avoid of reaching that tipping point before someone finally says, like, oh, we should do something before all these people are displaced. Well, they're already displaced. One of the last parts of my article is about a, a little bit of a similar neighborhood somewhere else where it looks like gentrification is in process, where displacement could be in, in process. And one of the solutions there was robust partnerships with a bunch of different nonprofits to bring in the money so they could redevelop one of these vacant spots. And now it's a community center, a youth community center. And it, it's also training the young people there to be advocates. So it kind of builds that momentum within the neighborhood. Could you tell us a little bit about your process in researching and writing this article? Yeah, so this was <laughs> uh, this was a six-month-long process, <laughs> and not everything made it into the article, so there are definitely going to be follow-up articles. But I really wanted to make sure that I understood what residents want, the history there, what the key issue was for people. What were some of the sources and resources that you drew on? So I think the biggest sources for me were the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission. They were responded to all my requests, sat down with me multiple times for long interviews. Um, and the Neighborhood Association was a big resource, especially um, Carmelita Wood, who's the Neighborhood Association president. Other than that, it was, you know, reading a lot of some of these plans, reading the small area plan all the way through. <laughs> it's very long. Can we expect to see more articles like this one at Charlottesville tomorrow? Yes, we have a few stories on the horizon that are going to be equally in-depth, and that's our new focus at this moment. So keep checking our website, and we'll be having an announcement of these stories pretty soon. And one of the things that Emily's story shows is that in nonprofit journalism, you have to try to help the community in various ways. You have to show impact. And one of the impacts we want to make is to um, make sure that some of the voices that haven't been heard over the years in policy discussions really become the focus of those policy discussions. Um, The people who are most affected by decisions have the most voice in sort of on the public record for what kind of change they should create. And we definitely want to move away from here's a meeting, here's what the official said, and that's the end of the story. That is only the beginning of the story. You know, we've doubled our newsroom in the past year. We've really improved our digital platform. We've introduced in-depth reporting and longer-form storytelling. And we just want to keep growing in those ways and kind of put a stake in the ground to say, community, if you want to support this type of work, we're here and we're on our own and we're accountable to you, not to a partnership or a distribution plan that's different from from who we are and also to give Elliot and the reporters, you know, just total control over their editorial identity. Do you want to give us a teaser about some of the pieces on the horizon or underway? Yes, um, the initial Police Civilian Review Board is finishing up its bylaws and looking at their work for the past year. We uh, sat down with some of the members and some experts and people in the community to see what it will mean going forward with the relationship with the police department and the Charlottesville community as a whole. And next month, I think we will be ready with a, a longer, deeper look at the recycling ecosystem in Charlottesville and Albemarle and its failures, <laughs> to be frank. And um, for a city that's 
trying to go carbon neutral and a county that says climate change is its number one priority, we, we should figure out what to do with our trash. As always, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM Charlottesville and the Tej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, we turn now to state news, and as we do, we check in with our friend over in the Richmond area, journalist Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we've got a few stories to cover today. I want to start with a story that you pointed me over to, asking why permits have been allowed for two huge natural gas plants uh, east of Richmond. Right. If gas is in such short supply that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is needed, why are we uh, permitting these new things? Well, that's kind of an interesting question that I just thought of. I mean, on, on Friday, the Air Pollution Control Board voted 6 to 1 to grant a permit for a, um, a large, um, more than 1,650 megawatt natural gas plant by a, a company that's based actually in Herndon, Virginia. There's another one planned that's just slightly smaller, and these are in Charles City County, which is a somewhat rural area with a lot of famous plantations southeast of Richmond. These kind of snuck under, in under the radar screen. There wasn't a lot of outcry about them. But somehow, Virginia Natural Gas is going to supply them with um, gas, and it links to big pipelines that run through the middle of the state. And this struck me as curious, because the two controversial new pipelines, uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline out in the far west of Virginia, um, are pushing ahead, or trying to push ahead, with the um, argument that there's going to be a shortage of natural gas. So one wonders if there's enough gas to supply these two large, I mean, they were one the Chickahominy um, LLC plant, um, the first one, would be the largest fossil fuel plant in the state. So the question, and I don't have an answer for it, but I mean, if there's a shortage of gas, how come there's plenty to supply these plants? Taking it back a step even, you know, we have been talking about nationwide, people talk about trying to shift to more renewables, and, and here we are approving like two giant new natural gas plants. I mean, what's the, what's the deal? Well, it's so funny because I know other people have brought this out in, like, the Virginia Mercury and commentary and things like that. This isn't really my idea, but it's interesting nonetheless that, um, you know, they claim, the company claims that they need these plants because there's so many new data centers coming in, mostly in northern Virginia, which has really become the superhighway of data transmission in the United States. Plus, there are new plants, say, in uh, the Richmond area, et cetera, and everybody's involved from Facebook to um, Amazon. And But when these newer companies come in, they say that they want to have uh, solar panel farms, solar farms, or wind if possible, to, so that 100% of their energy will be renewable, from renewables. And yet the other people on the other side are saying, well, we need these, these merchant gas plants to help, uh, you know, supply data centers, which do use a great deal of electricity, because they've got to keep everything running and everything air-conditioned to a great degree, because they get real hot. So, you know, it's just something I can, it's sort of a very contrarian kind of angle that I, I, I haven't really figured out yet. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit over to uh, uh, the redistricting. I know we covered this last week, but want to talk about the, the Supreme Court's case on that. But a very local uh, issue that comes out of it is that Kirk Cox, 
uh, House Speaker Kirk Cox might actually have a, a contender for his seat on the Democratic side now. Yes, that's true. He's in the 66th uh, Delegates uh, District, which is mostly um, eastern Chesterfield. And, um, you know, the the Supreme Court refused to take a case about, it was actually submitted part, in part by Cox, where Democrats had challenged uh, Republican redistricting, saying that it was packing African Americans, you know, in certain districts to make other districts more all-white or more predominantly white so that Republicans would be elected. And this is the same old story. You hear this a lot. This is not the first time it's happened. But anyway, after the Supreme Court made its decision last week, it means now that at least 25 uh, districts will, will be reshaped in some way or impacted. And one of those is the 66th. And uh, what it means is that the 66th district, which is reliable, reliably mostly white and conservative, now is going to have more Democrats in it. And so there's a, a woman named Sheila Bynum Coleman um, who is running. Uh, and, you know, it, it's you know, with potentially more de- uh, Democratic voters behind her. So, yeah, the, the, the nature of the district and its sort of voting patterns could shift, uh, be more competitive. Yeah, and I mean, it could mean, first off, you know, it could mean that, A, the House of Delegates and maybe the Senate swing to Democratic after years of Republican rule. But, I mean, the more interesting thing is Speaker of the House is a, a very powerful position in the state legislature. Um, for years, it was run by Bill Howell, who was, um, you know, very much a... Uh, uh, a strict uh, disciplinarian as far as party discipline in the Republican Party. And Kirk Cox has been in the delegates, uh, House of Delegates, for something like 29 years. And he was sitting there waiting for when, when Bill Howell retired, he pretty quickly became the, the new Speaker of the House. And so if that position is somehow in, in jeopardy, it really just further solidifies a Democratic swing in the legislature. Well, I want to uh, shift over to a different seat in the legislature, uh, House District 97. Uh, you and I uh, have, have covered this issue before as well. There's a huge, just vicious fight between the two Republicans vying for the nomination over there in the 97th. Uh, yeah. Chris Peace and Scott Wyatt are the two gentlemen. Yeah, and it's very vindictive because uh, Chris Peace is from Hanover. He's a Republican. He's been there for a while. And he had the bad taste for the, in the GOP sense to actually vote for expanding Medicaid and, um, you know, to something like 400,000 Virginians, which the Republicans had very, very steadfastly uh, refused to do. And um, sort of as, as, as a punishment, the um, Republican Party leaders wanted to push um, another man, Scott Wyatt, to, um, you know, replace him on the ballot. And so finally, uh, in a few, few days ago, um, these Republican State Central Committee voted 56 to 17 to affirm Scott Wyatt as the party's nominee for the 97th House District. And um, that's sort of bad for a number of different reasons. And what are those reasons? Well, basically, you know, the, uh, the Democrats do, have, do face some headwinds because of the scandals um, involving the three top Democratic elected officials. But, you see, rather, rather than taking the political advantage and riding this wave, the GOP is, is really into you know, internal warfare. And that will probably turn some voters off. Um, because, you know, wait a second, you know, we should be united here. We're facing a threat. I'm just thinking politically. But instead, we're, we're ripping each other apart over, you know, Medicaid, which has been resolved. So. Well, I, I don't think it's been resolved in, in their minds. In, to some no, extent. no, no, you're right, of course. Looking forward to November. What's the what's the new take? What's the hot take? 
Well, hot takes, uh, still I don't know. I mean, it's still a long way to, to November. Uh, it does appear that Northam and Herring are surviving uh, their political scandals. Uh, I'm not so, I don't know about Justin Fairfax. So that's going to happen, and, and if the Democrats forgive and forget, then they'll, they'll come through. Uh, the GOP, who knows? Um, a lot of that's an anti-Trump kind of situation. Um, and also, it's just sort of interesting because the GOP has dominated the legislature for so many years now. All right. Peter, thanks so much. Have a good week. Right. Yeah, you too. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM Charlottesville and the TJ FM Network. T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. This week, we will hear from Barb Shabinsky, class of 1989, on LGBTQ sentiments on grounds at the time and the founding of the Women and Gender Studies major. I was a student here from 85 to 89. Um, I knew before I came to school that I was feeling like maybe I was gay or lesbian. Those were really probably the only words that we really had at that time. Um, Nobody was really saying queer yet. um, And there wasn't really a very good like awareness of or acceptance of uh, sexual orientation being fluid, right? You kind of still had to decide. And it wasn't really that far before our time. Like when I came to school, anybody who thought they were lesbian or gay, we met across the street at the Wesley Foundation, which I can see from this trailer because we couldn't be on campus. And we met a lot of older gays and lesbians in town. And it wasn't that far before our time that you kind of had to decide things that seem really outmoded, like whether you were butch or femme. Like that's kind of a 1950s, 60s thing, but it was still hanging around. Um, so certainly we didn't have anything like queer or we didn't have trans yet. Not that it wasn't happening for some people, but it wasn't like included in sort of how we would label ourselves. And it was during my time here that we started a women's discussion group. We met in a little shack on the edge of campus that was the women's center at the time. It was like out behind the back of Cabell Hall and across the street there's a parking lot and like a little lane. And I haven't driven by to see if those little tiny shacks are still there or not. And we called it uh, LBQ, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Questioning. And that was big. And again, it was, you know, it was in a campus building, but barely. And um, we had a lot of concerns about, like, protecting people's privacy and, um, yeah, just sort of general safety. The goal for LBQ was literally just to give women who were thinking I'm not in the mainstream of this very heteronormative kind of um, Greek system driven social life, like just a place to go. Um, and we put the Q on intentionally because, you know, when you, well, now gender fluidity is like not so, so like hard to grasp. But I think it was like a way of saying, you don't have to know. You're 18 or 19 years old. You probably have like a whole mixed bag of feelings and experiences, right? So I think, you know, for that time to just kind of open it up was much more inviting to people than um, sort of requiring that they be like ready to sign up for like the gay and lesbian liberation <laughs> movement. 
We did do a kiss-in on the lawn in the spring of, I think it was 88 or 89, that got a lot of attention. When we were in school, um, gay or lesbian sexual relations were still a felony in the state of Virginia. So one of our efforts was to lobby the president of UVA at the time to have provisions on campus that uh, would have actually been in defiance of Virginia law, which is like a very big thing to ask of the UVA president, right? So there was a really great woman who started the women's studies major here named Sharon Davies, and she used to run the magazine Iris, this journal. They still have it. Um, So I am the first women's studies major of the University of Virginia. To officially, it was a certificate when I came here. So I'm an anthropology major, and partway through they made it possible to major in women's studies. So I believe I am the first one. Uh, I had a scholarship here. They still have it. It's called the Jefferson Scholars. And um, one of the expectations of Jefferson Scholars is that you are a leader in ways other than just being um, an outstanding academic student. Um, So they tend to pick people who have been very active in their high schools in some way or other, and they expect them to continue that. So I had been a university guide, and I was in a sorority, and, you know, uh, I was still also doing, like, I was playing rugby, and I was connecting with the, we called it the LGSU, that was the Lesbian Gay Student Union. Um, So I had all that, but I was trying pretty hard to be mainstream, too. And I ended up letting a lot of stuff go, and committed in the end to the crisis hotline at Madison House, and um, helping the women's studies major get started, doing LBQ um, and some things like that. And the person who ran the Jefferson Scholars Program at the time, I had gone to see him to, to argue for, um, so Jefferson Scholars is a full ride, but when you go abroad, they have to sort of cut you a check and you have to use it towards that, and they weren't sure they wanted to do that. And I think they've since solved that problem by having their own study abroad program. But it, I was like the sixth class, I think, of it, so they're still working it out. And so when I went to this, like, really plead my case about why that had been such a formative experience for me, and I don't want to say anything, like, super bad about him. He was a nice man. It was a different time. And, but what he told me was that while he respected what I was involved with, that I displayed unquantifiable achievement, which means that when you go to donors to try to get them to give money to continue these programs, what they want is people who live on the lawn. What they want is people who work on the mainstream you know, activities and the people who are getting into the secret societies. And just the sort of, at that time, it meant the kind of like really old line stuff of things to uh, sort of brag about or feel good about, you know, about the University of Virginia. And I never forgot that, you know, that, that this sort of feminist, lesbian, gay thing that I felt like was really helping people Um, including like closeted athletes who felt like they couldn't come out or they would lose their athletic scholarships. I mean, it was, it was serious that it was unquantifiable. It made a huge impact on me. When I was doing my interviewing for the Jefferson Scholars, they asked me how I was going to bear to, uh, how I was going to balance my, um, career, you know, with marriage and motherhood. That was a normal question for an older male person to ask you as an, high school senior female, you know. I actually participated myself as an interviewer um, 
where I live in the regional process, and we would never in a million years ask that. Like, no one would ask that anymore. But that was, like, not a big deal then. I had a crossroads at that moment when they asked me about how I would balance the career with marriage and motherhood. Um, and I pushed back a little, like, well, what if I don't get married? And they were like, oh, no, no, no. Ha, ha, ha. Like, like, that's crazy. Uh, and... Uh, and they're like, well, but you're going to. And I'm like, well, but what if I don't? And they were like, but what if God tells you to? And I was like, wow, okay, now we've got like two categories of things that shouldn't be happening here. And I've, I could have, I was enough of a nascent feminist, I think, at that time that I could have taken them apart, right? But I wouldn't have gotten the scholarship. And so what I thought was I'd rather take the money and try to do something. That was Barb Shabinsky. And that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Molly Strauchler. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwenna Lasko and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Peace out, Charlottesville. Thank you.